True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Okay, so we need to clear the stuff out here and then we can lay the... Buddy, hell. Whoa, 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 Owens, whoa, stop, stop. Uh, what is that? Is... Is that a... Where my... F- Induna, where's my phone? We need the police here. A homeowner doing renovations on his property makes an alarming discovery. Skeletal remains and clothing are found, and the SAPS cordon his yard off as a crime scene. But how did this woman come to be buried in this man's garden, and who could she possibly be? This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 57, The Mystery of Meadowbrook Doe. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Janita Kirsten, Ruth Ann, Sedgwick Amour, Marinda Erasmus and Michelle DeVette for their support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. You can also support the show and get a 10% discount on your health and beauty needs by purchasing from King Online and use the discount code TCSA10 at checkout. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Playbooks, or Apple Podcasts. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way, to keeping the show growing and improving. Today I'm covering the first Doe case I've ever discussed on this podcast. If you listen to American podcasts, you'll regularly hear cases about unidentified deceased persons. But for some reason, in South Africa, they don't tend to get much coverage. I'm hoping that today's case will start to change that, and I encourage you to send me any Doe cases that you know about. I'm rattling off the word Doe with the assumption that you know what I'm talking about, but you may not be familiar with the term. The terms Jane and John Doe have been used to describe unidentified people since, well, actually as long as people can remember. The first use of the terms can be traced back to the British legal system, 
when landlords wanted to take illegal occupants of their land to court, but didn't always know their names. So the names Jane Doe for females and John Doe for males started being used in court proceedings. That practice was abolished in the early 1900s, but the term stuck as a way to describe people whose names are not known. In the true crime world, Jane and John Doe's are usually unidentified deceased people. These people are often, but not always, the victims of crime, and in the United States, several special projects have been set up to help identify these people. To avoid confusion, the unidentified usually have an additional descriptor added to the term Doe, which will come from either the place they were found in or something they were wearing at the time that sets them apart from other Doe's. The concept of covering the murder of a victim whose identity we don't know may seem a little difficult to grasp, but I think we should keep in mind all the missing persons cases I've covered. Those people could very well, sadly, be a Jane or John Doe. So while I usually cover victims' stories from beginning to the point at which they became the victims of violent crime or unexplained disappearance, in this episode, we're going to be doing the opposite. We're going to have to start at the end point, the acknowledgement of the victim's final fate, and then try to work our way backwards, and hopefully... If we work hard enough and things align in our favour, we will be able to tell the beginning of this victim's story in the future. For this episode, I chatted with a journalist that's initially covered this case. I also used some media articles and received information from a source close to the case, who shall remain unnamed at this point. I started working on this case quite a few months ago, actually. I interviewed Charmaine Slater, the journalist from Caxton Newspapers, in May this year. Sometimes I have to put cases on the back burner, because I don't have the resources to do them justice at the time. But I always come back to them. And such was the case with Meadowbrook Doe. It's a story that's been 32 years in the making and it was just begging to be told. So let's get into episode 57, The Mystery of Meadowbrook Doe. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. On the 28th of March 2012, a homeowner in Meadowbrook, Germiston, was renovating his home. Rudy Marks had purchased the home two years earlier, and part of his plan was to remove the existing pool, which had originally been installed in 1989. Rudy had a team of workers out at his property at that time, working on this task, and all was going well with the demolition. The water had been pumped out of the pool, and it had almost entirely been broken away. 
Everything was going swimmingly, if you'll excuse the bad pun, until the men reached the steps of the pool. The worker that originally made the sighting acknowledged that he had seen something strange as they broke away the concrete of the steps, but he figured that it was his imagination, so he kept working. But then he saw another one. I am certain that, as most people would, the team assumed that they were looking at animal bones when they peered down into the dark soil. The bones were scattered and didn't immediately present as being human. But there was clothing too, and that jawbone looked suspiciously large for it to have belonged to a buried pet. As journalist Charmaine Slater will explain to you, by the time she arrived on the scene, the police were already there. The homeowner had been alerted to this strange discovery by the workman, and he immediately knew that work had to stop right away. Initially, police from Bedford View Police Station took control of the scene. Meadowbrook, although technically in Germiston, sits between the R24 and the N12 highways and borders both Germiston and Bedford View precincts. The street in which the Marks House stood is closer to the N12, which is likely why the Bedford View police attended. Soon, though, even these policemen realised that this was a case for the higher-ups, and officers from the provincial team were alerted. When police arrived on the scene, they confirmed the workers' and Rudy Marx's initial fears. Although laboratory testing would be required to confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt, it seemed very likely that they had found human remains under the swimming pool steps. The remains were completely skeletonized and consisted of a jawbone, what appeared to be leg bones, and a piece of a pelvis bone. Along with the bones, detectives discovered a green woolen dress, a pair of black tights, and a simple brass ring. Here's Charmaine Slater to tell you about her experiences on that day. I'm Charmaine Slater. I work for the Bedford View and Edenvale News, Germiston City News, Kempton Express and the Timbeeson. I am currently the assistant editor for the four papers and I cover the news happenings for Bedford View and that basically entails everything from crime stories to sports stories and school stories. That was absolutely one of the most interesting stories that I've ever covered. And it's just been a mystery since then with you know, with everything that's happened. But it happened in at the end of March in 2012. It was a normal day at work and then a resident, a neighbouring resident actually phoned us, the newspaper, and said, there's something happening, you know, next door. Maybe we want to check it out. So we phoned the Bedford View spokesperson in Clabati, and he said, there is something happening. They found a skeleton underneath a swimming pool. And Brian and myself were at that door in a heartbeat. We needed to go and see this. 
so when we got there, it was, you know, your station police officers, there was nobody from provincial there yet. So they had a, a nice relationship with us. They led us onto the scene to see what was happening. We chatted to the the guys working on the pool. We got the most amazing photographs, which somehow since then we have lost when servers crashed. We were part, a big part of that initial on-site investigation and we try to follow up weekly from there. If you know somebody's come forward, if there's been further information. So the story was a very big part for myself and Brian for probably about six months. And then things just started to fizzle out from the SAPS that they didn't have enough resources to look off, you know, look out for the case. So they've lost track of it somehow, you know, different investigating officers. And, you know, since then, it's literally been, you know, following up once a year and seeing if anything's happened. I'm going to be posting the pictures of the dress on social media. And when you see it, you're going to notice something. It stood out to me immediately and sent chills down my spine. All along the front of the dress, in the chest area, there are slashes in the material. My first thought was that these look like stab marks. Is that how Meadowbrook Doe died? Here's what Charmaine had to say about those incisions. I remember those holes distinctly. But one of the on-site at the time, the the day it was found, one of the police officers actually said, you know, it could be just general decay and how you're placing sand and a pool over a body. It could be that. There was so much speculation going on at the time from a station level through to the professors we interviewed. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that although I respect that the policemen were likely trying to be cautious, those incisions in the material look far too uniform to be caused by natural degradation of the material. Plus, I don't see them anywhere else on the dress, and it would be weird for me for such wearing to only take place in one area and in such a regular fashion. Not impossible, of course, and we'll get to the availability of professional analysis of this type of evidence a little later. Police were able to determine that the pool was originally laid in 1989, and it would be agreed by all involved that it's highly likely that this is the time at which Meadowbrook Doe's body was placed there. Here's Charmaine's take on that. The actual, where the body was, the remains, it was underneath the step. So, you know, if you're building the pool, it would have had to be the last bit of the pool that was put in. And the pool built, the steps of the pool built over where the body was buried. It wasn't something that you'd miss just putting a pool in. It was either overlooked when the pool was first put in that you know maybe about 10 or so years before then or did actually have you know the body was there when the pool was being put in and it was an intentional burial of uh, this poor victim this what we can only assume is a woman 
because of the little green dress that was found. Rudy Marks, of course, did not own the house in 1989. The police were able to determine who did own the house, and the person was interviewed by telephone, as they now live in the United Kingdom. They were unable to provide any information about who Meadowbrook Doe could be. I do have the name of the owner at that time, but I will not be sharing it, both for the person's privacy and also to protect the integrity of any future investigations. Rudy Marks was so shaken by the discovery of these remains on his property that he decided to engage the services of a private investigator and a private forensic scientist. Dr. David Klatzow is a renowned figure in South African forensic science. His book, Steeped in Blood, provides alternate and additional forensic views on several high-profile cases, including the murder of Inga Lotz and Brett Kebble. Private investigator Henny Else is no stranger to the spotlight either. He worked on the case of Tashus Borsch, the South African cricketer who allegedly died of Julian Barr syndrome, but who many believed to have been poisoned. Both men were tasked by Rudy with working on this Meadowbrook Doe case. I reached out to both Klatzau and Else for comment on this case, but hadn't received a response by the time I was ready to record this episode. I will discuss some of David Klatzau's findings that were published in the media a little later. The discovery of Meadowbrook Doe was not just a major story for local journalists like Charmaine. It was also closely followed by national journalists. Different theories were bandied about. It was understood that the bones would have to be analysed by a forensic anthropologist, and of course everyone wondered whether a DNA profile would even be possible. I mean, with our initial investigations, we contacted Professor Alan Morris at UCT, and he said it would be possible to get DNA and do a proper profile on the the actual remains that were found. But they didn't know if at that point, if the SAPS had, if they would have capacity to do that, basically, and um, or the technology. Uh, I think from then, I mean, it's almost, it's like 10 years or nearly 10 years ago. From that, you know, back then to now, there might be something different, you know, different outcome. If it had happened this year, let's say, the outcome would be a lot different. But the case has been handed over to so many different investigating officers over the years. It's, I don't know if they've got the, the DNA yet. I wait and, you know, ask them every week. You know, if got, once I've sent out my, my yearly thing, I follow up for about three months, like every week. Have you, you know, have you found anything? Can you give me an update? And then they just tell me no update. So that should really have been that. No DNA, no idea who this person even was, and no way of finding out. That should have been the end of the investigation into Meadowbrook Doe. Except it wasn't. Not by a long shot. When police investigated the original installation of the swimming pool, 
they discovered that it was installed by a company called Gorgie Pools. The company is now defunct, but police did manage to speak with one of the previous directors. He said that it would be almost impossible to determine exactly which people had worked on the pool in 1989. And I guess understandably so. No one is going to keep work records from one single site for 23 years. The other director of the company could not be traced at the time of the initial investigation. From what I can see, I believe the man is deceased. One interesting thing did come out of this section of the investigation, though. When a link would be made to a man whom Gorgie Pools often subcontracted work, especially pool work. This man's name is well known in South Africa for all the wrong reasons. His name sends a chill down the spines of many, and when he is linked with skeletal remains, it becomes all the more eyebrow-raising. That man is Gert van Rooyen. Between 1988 and 1990, when Gert van Rooyen wasn't doing construction work and installing pools, he and his girlfriend Joey Harthoff were kidnapping young girls. At least six young girls are believed to have been kidnapped by the couple before the pair committed suicide in 1990 after being chased by police. The six young girls that disappeared have never been found. In the ensuing years, the mystery has only grown. Many different theories have been touted, and it is without a doubt the most requested case for this podcast. With this level of infamy in mind, when this connection was discovered, it got everyone's detective minds working overtime. So what Brian and myself did is we sat down and we went through all of the Gert van Rooyen documents that we could find and, you know, his basic history of, you know, where he worked and everything. And one of the companies that did come up that he worked for was Giorgio Pools. And that company actually did do quite a little bit of work in the Edenvale, Bedford View area. So I think that's where the link came in. The actual remains, personally, I think were a bit larger. The bones, the actual bone structure was probably a bit larger than the girls that were taken. And we've since, through Kempton Express, come in contact with uh, Van Rooyen's son. But that's for a different story. Um, but yeah, that was mostly speculations. There was a couple of other speculations which we just we never published because we just had no proof. One of them came from the SAPS to say that you know it may have been a domestic worker that was killed or hurt by a previous owner of the house. It could have happened before they even built the pool. Despite Charmaine's tenacity in this case, constantly following up never letting an anniversary of Meadowbrook Doe's discovery go unnoticed. She was constantly met with no response. No more information flowed from the police, and it seemed the case was now well and truly cold. But everything was not as it seemed. 
When I started to look into this case, I was able to confirm some developments with a source close to the case. I completely trust the source, but I take full responsibility for the two pieces of information I'm about to give you. I was recently able to confirm that the forensic anthropologist determined that the remains of Meadowbrook Doe belong to a black female. In 2013, reporters were told that the bones would most likely be sent overseas to attempt to extract a DNA profile, but that was the last that anyone heard. I can, however, tell you that this DNA extraction process was successful, and we are in the possession of a DNA profile for Meadowbrook Doe. Sadly, when run through the DNA database for known missing persons, no match was found. This is not surprising. We did not have the same systems in 1989 that we have today. The systems they did have did not translate well decades later, so even if Meadowbrook Doe was reported missing by her family, there's a very good chance that there would no longer be a traceable record of the report. The stark truth is that in 1989, the disappearance of a black female would very likely not have been reported. If it was, it may not have received the attention it deserved. That was the reality of apartheid South Africa. I'm not saying that no cases involving black South Africans were investigated during that time, because they quite obviously were, and good work was still done on cases for victims of all races at that time. But there were failings, and we would be blind if we don't acknowledge that. The other side of the coin is whether the family would have reported her missing. At that time in South Africa, it was not uncommon for people to leave their families in other provinces and travel large distances looking for work. As we've seen in many of our serial murder cases, this played into the hands of many offenders, because families often wouldn't know for months or even years that something was wrong. By then, it might be too late to even know where to start looking. Before we move on, I want to quickly discuss why South African authorities would send these bones overseas for testing. According to their website, the International Commission on Missing Persons works with governments, civil society organizations, justice institutions, international organizations, and others throughout the world to address the issue of people who have gone missing as a result of armed conflict, human rights abuses, disasters, organized crime, irregular migration, and other causes. One of the most important tools in the ICMP's toolkit is advanced DNA extraction and testing methods. These methods are expensive and not widely available to law enforcement in most countries. It's for this reason that when bones as old as Meadowbrook Doe's remains are found, they may be sent to one of the ICMP testing centres for specialised DNA extraction. When remains have been laying in the soil for 23 years without protection from the elements, 
it is extremely difficult to extract DNA from them. And your best chance is an ICMP testing centre. So the remains of Meadowbrook Doe, or at least some of them, travelled all the way, probably, to the testing centre in Bosnia. And it is there that the sum of digits, dots and lines that make up the secrets of her identity was determined. When I looked into the ICMP and read about their work with South Africa, I stumbled upon something that got me thinking. I had no idea that this task team existed, but the National Prosecuting Authority in South Africa has what is called the Missing Persons Task Team. The task team was originally formed during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to aid authorities in identifying the victims of apartheid-era atrocities. By the end of the TRC, there were still 477 missing victims, specifically of events discussed within that commission. So the task team was not disbanded. Instead, it was set up under the NPA's control and continues to work to identify victims and burial sites to this day. The task team is headed up by Madeleine Fullard and works with forensic anthropologists and other related disciplines. The fact that there is no DNA match for Meadowbrook Doe in our standard victim identification system is no surprise. But finding out about this very specific task team got me wondering. If any database in South Africa might have information about a black female that went missing in 1989 at the height of apartheid, it might just be this one. Although families may not have come forward at the time, Many have since the fall of apartheid and the work of the TRC. Families provide information to the task team and they try to work to match those people up with grave sites and remains. Sure, there's a good chance that Meadowbrook Doe's death has absolutely no political motivation. But her name and DNA profile might have made it onto their database. So, as one does, I emailed the NPA. I explained the situation and asked that the request be put forward to the task team. The NPA's media office replied very quickly, and they have forwarded my request. Now, I'm under no illusions here. I'm very likely not the only person that's thought of this. Perhaps this has even been tried already. I don't know, but I figured it was worth a try. Maybe, just maybe, Meadowbrook Doe's real identity is on that database. I've put a request in to the SAPS for an official update on this case, and I will also say that being the first time I've done this, it was actually a really pleasant and well-organised experience. I got almost immediate, thoughtful replies from the SAPS media liaison people, and after requesting some further information, my request has been put forward. 
With all the information and confirmations I'm still waiting for, you may wonder, why even cover the case now? Why not just wait until all these responses come through? Well, I figured that Meadowbrook Doe has been waiting 32 years for her name to be given back to her. And I don't think she should have to wait a single day longer for the conversation about her disappearance and murder to be restarted. And today is that day. So what do we know so far? One day in 1989, a woman left home and never came back. Well, even that could be a bit hazy, because as Charmaine Slater said, one person even suggested that this woman could have been a living domestic worker. Meadowbrook Doe could have come from any part of South Africa. Heck, she may even be from one of our neighbouring countries. To determine how likely it could be that Meadowbrook Doe is from a neighbouring country and not South Africa, I did a bit of research into migration patterns at that time in South African history. I was only nine years old at the time that Meadowbrook Doe would have been buried under the swimming pool, so sadly I have no personal experience to draw on. In the 1960s, 70s and early 80s, immigration into South Africa for purposes of work from neighbouring countries was not easy. Essentially, it was only certain industries that were allowed to use migrant labour. For the most part, mining and agriculture. And the Migrant Labour Act made it the employer's responsibility to ensure that their workers left the country when their contracts were over. For the most part, during this time, it would have been men that were coming from other countries. In the period from 1984 to 1994, when the mining industry became depressed, the number of migrant workers actually decreased significantly. So looking at this, it seems far more likely that Meadowbrook Doe would have been a South African citizen. Of course, that's not to say that people didn't illegally cross the border, they must have, but on a balance of probabilities, I'd say it's safe to assume, at least for now, that she is a South African. But South Africa is a pretty big place. Just because she was working in what was then Transvaal doesn't mean her family lived there. On that day in 1989, Meadowbrook Doe may have woken up on those premises. Or she may have arrived for work. Or she may very well have never been alive on those premises. The only way we'll be able to figure out that part of the story is by identifying her. If we have Meadowbrook Doe's name, we will be able to determine whether she is in any way linked to the people that owned that house in, in 1989. And if she isn't, then that means she's linked to one of the people that installed the pool. I do believe that those are our two options. Occam's Razor. The simplest explanation is usually the most correct. I don't believe that some random murderer happened to be driving past this house in 1989, saw that a pool was being built 
and decided to use it to dispose of a victim. That would be too risky. In fact, even for someone living on the premises, it would have still been pretty risky. Unless they were intimately familiar with the pool building process and knew exactly how and where to bury their victim, so that she would be directly under the pool stairs. As Charmaine Slater says, the pool stairs are usually installed last, so the murder would have had to have taken place at exactly the right time to conveniently use the stairs as the place of burial. I refer to her murder because, at least to me, it seems pretty clear that foul play was involved here. Meadowbrook Doe did not crawl up underneath the swimming pool foundation and die. I also firmly believe that those incisions on her dress are stab marks. If we cast our gaze to those on the team installing the pool, I'm going to hazard a guess that if one of them was involved, it was likely not one of the menial workers. It was probably someone with authority someone that knew that they could call the shots to avoid having their secrets discovered in the process of finishing the pool. And that brings us to that other link, the one that everyone was talking about for quite some time, Gert van Royen. I want to make it very clear that we have absolutely no proof that van Royen worked on this pool. We do know that he did do pool installation subcontracting work for Gorgie Pools, who was the main contractor on this job. So yes, there's a link. A weak one, but a link all the same. Honestly, when I discovered that Meadowbrook Doe was an adult black female, I thought that that all but counted out any Van Royen involvement. His alleged victims were all white schoolgirls, right? Except maybe they weren't. In recent new investigations, some have alleged that when Gerd van Royen's Pretoria house was searched after his death, cut-up school dresses were found. Of course, in 1989, our education system was still segregated, so white children attended certain schools and black children, for the most part, attended certain schools. According to the allegations recently made, the pieces of school uniform found may have belonged to a traditionally black school. There are also reports of Gert van Royen getting into tussles in townships for harassing black women. And then there's Gert van Royen's son, Flippy, who in 1991 was convicted of the rape, murder and dismemberment of a black schoolgirl. So the van Royen predators do seem to have crossed race lines where their victims were concerned. The only thing that bothers me about this is that the forensic anthropologist determined that Meadowbrook Doe was an adult. Charmaine Slater estimates that the green dress was probably a size 12. But not just adults wear size 12 dresses. Older teenagers might too. David Klatzow, 
the private forensic scientist hired by Rudy Marx, did say that he believed it could not be discounted that the bones belonged to an older teenager. And he also said something else that's quite interesting. Klatsau, to my knowledge, was not given access to the bones by SAPS. He looked at photographs and said that he identified what appeared to be saw marks on the bones. He does not think that the marks could have been caused by the digging of the contractors. The main reason that someone would take a saw to a body is to dismember it. Flippy van Royen's victim was dismembered too. One thing I don't know that is quite crucial to the story is whether all of Meadowbrook Doe's bones were found that day. I don't think that they were. I'm hoping that the official statement I await will shed more light on this. But if Meadowbrook Doe was dismembered, that would mean that possibly not all of her remains were buried in one place. It also means that it would be much easier for someone to hide the remains. But there's one problem with the dismemberment theory. If Doe was dismembered, she was not wearing any clothing when it happened. Her dress is in one piece, so are her tights. And if you've gone to the trouble of dismembering a body, why bury the clothing in the same place as some of the body parts? Before I move on from the Van Royen theory, I must acknowledge one more piece of information that I stumbled upon. In 2007, the house next door to Kat van Royen's home was identified as a possible burial place through an investigation headed up by the investigative journalism program Carte Blanche. Skeletonized remains of several individuals do appear to have been found that day. Some were male and some were female. And I'll give you one wild guess where the remains were found. If you just shouted, under the pool, you're correct. So all of this seems really damning, right? But I think we have to be wary of drawing conclusions where there are none to be drawn. Yes, there are some aspects of this crime that fit with Van Royen or his son. But there are many more that don't. One thing that's always worried me about the six missing girls that Van Royen is believed to have taken is that the case has perhaps not been solved because we are so focused on that man. No, I'm not saying he didn't do what he's accused of. But we've spent 32 years so focused on Gert van Royen and Joey Harthoff, and it's led nowhere. So maybe the answer lies in just looking at the individual crimes. And yes, before you ask, I would very much like to cover that case too, and plan to in the future. But today is about Meadowbrook Doe. And my concern is that if we start to draw links between her and Van Royen, is the same thing going to happen to her case? Are we going to be so blinded by the forest that we don't see the trees? 
we cannot identify a person that we think committed a crime and then work retrospectively and try to tie a victim to them. It doesn't work that way. We need to know who the victim was, and then we can find her killer. So what else do we know about Meadowbrook Doe and her last moments on Earth? Because we don't have records from the company that built the pool, we don't know exactly when in 1989 it was put in. Meadowbrook Doe's dress is described by Charmaine Slater as being woolen. But as you'll see from the photographs, it's not particularly thick material. Bearing in mind that it had been buried for 23 years at the time it was discovered. The tights that were with the body don't appear to be normal pantyhose. They're black and they appear to be quite thick. They actually remind me of the black stockings we used to wear at school. So I think it would be fair to assume that Meadowbrook Doe was not dressed for a hot summer's day on the day she died. I don't think it was deep winter, but there was likely a chill in the air. So if I cast my mind back to Joburg weather patterns, that probably puts us between April and June or even early spring in September. She could definitely have had a jacket over that dress, and then that would put us back in the winter months. And of course, I'm looking at this from the perspective of a person who is privileged enough to have a choice about what to wear according to the seasons. We don't know Meadowbrook Doe's economic situation, and it's entirely possible that she didn't have many clothes, so she may have been forced to dress unsuitably for the season. There was one other thing that Charmaine Slater remembers being found that day, and that was the ring. You heard her mention that. We don't have a particularly good picture of the ring, but it does appear to be a plain brass-coloured band. It could most certainly be a wedding ring. In order to solve this case, it is absolutely vital that we identify Meadowbrook Doe. I'm hoping that the missing persons task team may be able to assist with that, and I'll let you know as soon as I hear back. But there are other ways that we can start to facilitate the identification. But the time we have to do this in is ticking away. If Meadowbrook Doe was a mother with relatively young children at the time of her death, they would be in their 40s now. Depending on her age, her parents may already be deceased. But people don't just disappear without at least one person remembering them. Someone knows that their mother, sister, daughter wife or friend, left home and never came back. Someone may recognise this dress, somewhere in the dark reaches of their memory. Someone may remember their loved one having worked in this area before she disappeared. Those are the people whose memories we need to get into. If a family member is found that's able to identify this clothing, 
or the last known location of Meadowbrook Doe, we can compare their DNA to her profile. Maybe you didn't know her, but you lived in the area at the time and saw her walking to work. At this point, any piece of information will help to add to the puzzle. There's not enough uh, publicity around these types of cases. Ultimately, she was somebody's family, somebody's either daughter or mother or sister. You know, she was somewhere, she belonged to somebody. I would love for a DNA outcome on the case um, to actually put closure. I mean, it's almost almost 10 years just to get closure, not even for us, but, I mean, for whoever's missing their family member for so many years. The Van Royen theory is certainly tantalising and sensational, but I actually don't want to focus too much on that. There's really nothing to be gained by going to dig into his past now to try and match this victim up with him. That should certainly be done for the six girls who were very likely his victims, but I don't believe that's the best course of action for Meadowbrook Doe. By focusing our energy on helping to identify her, we will then be able to figure out who she is more likely tied to. There are a few things that need to be revisited in this case. I would still love to get insights from David Klatzow and the P.I. Henny else. Most importantly, though, I'd like to get that official update from the SAPS so that we can figure out what has been done and what can still be done, if anything. The database from the Missing Persons Task Team is a hopeful possibility. Just as a bit of added information, I wonder if anyone out there is an expert on fashion trends and garments worn during the last few decades in South Africa. If there's someone out there with such knowledge, please reach out to me, as I'd love to get your take on the dress and whether you think it's representative of the times. I know how much we want to get involved with helping to solve cases. And you've all already helped to bring leads in in missing person cases. I think that Meadowbrook Doe is one that we can really sink our teeth into. If a case ever needed to have awareness raised around it in order for it to be solved, it's this one. Charmaine Slater has very kindly supplied me with all of the photographs she has from the scene and I will be posting those on all the social media platforms. Please share this with as many people as you can. Cast your mind back to 1989 and ask yourself who you knew then that may have had a family member simply disappear. Who may have been a person that could have lost a family member and not had the means of recourse at the time to find them. Start talking about 1989 and what you were doing then, what your friends were doing and where they were living. The answer is out there and it's simpler than we think. 
when you look at the photographs of Meadowbrook Doe's skeletal remains, it will be easy not to see a human being there. But I want you to look at her dress and picture that dress being worn by someone you love. Picture a living, breathing human being inside that clothing because that is who she was. After 23 years in the ground and nine above the surface, all that remains of her physical body is bones. But she lived once. I want you to think about all of the families of all the missing people we've spoken to on this podcast and how desperate they are for answers. Well, here we have someone's answer. Now we just need to know what the question is. This case presented many firsts for me, and I have many people to thank for helping me to bring this case to you. Charmaine Slater is a dedicated journalist who serves her community, and she's never forgotten about Meadowbrook Doe. When she looked down on her remains that day, she didn't see a one-off story. She saw a human being that deserved answers. I cannot name many of the people that I need to thank, but you know who you are, and I am endlessly grateful for your placing your trust in me. This is most certainly not the last you will hear about this case on this podcast. As soon as I have responses to the many queries I've sent out, you'll hear back from me. That day in 1989 may have been the end of Meadowbrook Doe's life. But today, in 2021, it is the beginning of a search for justice for her and the quest to give her her name back. Thank you for listening to episode 57, The Mystery of Meadowbrook Doe. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with the Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.